0: Monday and welcome to Rising. We have a stupendous show for you today. I'm joined by Bacha Angar-Sargon. Nice to see you, Bacha.
1: Great to see you. Good morning, Robbie.
0: Good morning. Well, obviously, there was big news last week after we were done for the week. <laughs> Love when that happens. And now it's finally time to address it. Why don't you tee us up, Bacha?
1: Right, so former President Trump says he will give remarks from Mar-a-Lago tomorrow night after he is arraigned. Trump was, of course, formally indicted by a Manhattan grand jury on Friday over alleged hush money payments he made to Stormy Daniels. According to The Guardian, Trump has apparently already requested t-shirts with his mugshot be made as he seeks to capitalize politically on the arrest. Axios reports that the former president has already raised at least $5 million in funds for his 24 campaign since the indictment was made official on Friday. And according to the Trump campaign, 25% of gifts given in the hours after the news dropped came from first-time donors.
0: Now, the Hill's Zach Schoenfeld has been following this story closely, and he joins us now to weigh in. Zach, what do you think we should be expecting tomorrow night?
2: Well, there is a lot of lead up to what will happen in a courthouse in lower Manhattan tomorrow afternoon, but the former president is it's all expected to lead up to a courthouse appearance that may only last a matter of minutes. It's entirely possible that when Trump comes in for his arraignment tomorrow afternoon, he may not even say a word before the judge. Uh, We expect during that court proceeding, the indictment will be unsealed. Both Trump's lawyers and the public for the first time will learn of the charges that the grand jury indicted him on last week. He will enter a plea. We expect him to plead not guilty, uh, but his lawyers might be the ones to actually say the words not guilty in the courtroom. So then comes Tuesday night uh, where the former president has said he will uh, make remarks at Mar-a-Lago. Now, one interesting thing to watch tomorrow is there is a possibility that the judge issues a gag order, which would effectively prevent Trump from talking about the case in any way, shape or form outside of the courtroom. Now, of course, his remarks at Mar-a-Lago are scheduled for after his time in court tomorrow. So it'll be interesting to see when he appears in the courtroom if there's any restrictions on what he can say moving forward.
0: And and what is the the likelihood of that? What decision goes into whether there will be some kind of gag order put in place? Because that seems like a
2: big deal here. (laughs) I I spoke to a few uh, veterans of the process of prosecutors and defense lawyers who tell me that this has been done before, but it's not something that's very common. Uh, but judges in the past have done it before uh, when they're worried that some of these comments outside of the courtroom would potentially uh, affect a jury pool for the trial down the road. So, of course, in the back of everyone's minds are these various posts uh, that the former president has made on Truth Social in recent days, uh, including also just a few days ago uh, in, in a post that is now deleted. He uh, had a baseball bat. Uh, this pictured next to, to Alvin. Bragg. Uh, now, his lawyers over the weekend went on the Sunday morning talk shows and really tried to tone down some of that rhetoric. Uh, his lawyer, Joe Takapina, uh, said that the judge Uh, He made positive comments about the judge that is expected to oversee the case. So really trying to tamp down that rhetoric. Um, But it's some of those posts and and some of those uh, attacks on both the district attorney and the judge that we've seen from the former president in recent days uh, that has given some longtime veterans of the process in Manhattan some pause and wondering if the judge will impose a gag order. Uh, Now, such an order the judge could either do on his own tomorrow. Uh, We could also see the district attorney's office make such a move.
1: You know, Zach, what, what can we expect from the president, um, former president on Tuesday night? There's, It seems to me that there's, you know, on the one hand, there's a lot of reporting that he is sort of horrified, scared, um, you know, that there's a lot of negative feeling around this, you know, understandably, but on the other hand, you know, you report that there's kind of a little bit of exuberance as well, the opportunity to capitalize. We know that he gets these bumps in polling when he's able to sort of convince his base and, you know, maybe even a few other people as well that he is sort of being targeted politically. Um, So which which versions of those of Trump are, are we likely to see tomorrow night?
2: Well, we will see, and and it might in part depend on how Tuesday goes at the courthouse, uh, because there are some questions that are still unclear. For example, will there be uh, a camera in the courtroom and things like that? So these planned remarks at Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday evening really are the former president's opportunity uh, to address and, and speak publicly uh, about this case. Uh, so that's where uh, the public can expect to hear the most from the former president. So in terms of what tone will he take, as, as you were suggesting, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but it's also, you know, we're waiting to see if he makes the traditional walk down the 15th floor hallway in the courthouse. Will he go in front of the cameras uh, as he does the traditional perp walk? Uh, so we're waiting to see uh, how he tries to capitalize on, uh, on this, what images he tries to get in New York. It's still unclear if he will actually take a mugshot. Uh, so it, it, in part, these remarks at mar lago on Tuesday evening could depend on how the day goes actually at the court itself. Uh, now, as, as you were alluding to, uh, the former president, president, uh, both after he was indicted and well beforehand, uh, was attacking this investigation as politically motivated. Uh, he's attacked the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, a Democrat, uh, very directly, and he's been backed up by many in the Republican Party on that front, including uh, some of his potential 2024 uh, rivals. Uh, so the interesting thing, as I was saying earlier with the gag order, uh, it will be to see, is does Trump continue to make these attacks on uh, the, the criminal justice system, the judge and, and prosecutor? Uh, Or do we now see that toned down uh, both at his remarks at Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday night and as this case moves forward potentially to trial?
0: Zach, you've said in your writing about the indictment uh, that the indictment uh, is a zombie or a sleeper case. Can you elaborate on what you meant
2: by that terminology? Absolutely. The former president over the last few years has been involved in what frankly is a dizzy array of legal battles. Um, But this case that we're now focused on involves a 2016 hush money payment uh, that his fixer Michael Cohen paid to an adult film star Stormy Daniels shortly before the 2016 election. Uh, This has been a payment uh, that has been scrutinized by prosecutors both at the state and federal level uh, for multiple years now. Uh, This is a payment that Michael Cohen, his fixer, actually pleaded guilty to in federal court uh, a few years ago in connection with the payment that included campaign finance violations. Uh, So this payment and the scrutiny around it has been around for a number of years. Now, the reason that it's been called the zombie case, that's a term that some prosecutors within the Manhattan District Attorney's Office have used, is because this is one of the first things they looked at when they first uh, opened an investigation uh, into uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Since then, in in the last few years, uh, it's went to various different tracks. We've seen them look into the the benefits that were paid to employees of the Trump Organization. Uh, We've seen them look into property values of the Trump Organization organization and whether they were uh, unlawfully inflated or deflated for tax and loan benefits. But now, although we don't know the specific charges contained in the indictment, we are expecting them to focus on the case that started this whole investigation, the hush money payment. So it's been called the zombie case because prosecutors say that, yeah, it's faded before in that office under a former district attorney, but it never really died, as we can see now, as the former president is prepared to face his first ever criminal charges. Mm.
0: Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be with you.
1: Robbie, what's
0: on your radar? Well, last Friday, a New York grand jury finally indicted Donald Trump, as expected, relating to alleged hush money payments made to porn actress Stormy Daniels. It's the contention of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg that these payments violate campaign finance law. Now, Republicans and conservatives are universally furious that Bragg has taken this extraordinary step. And in their vociferous criticism of Trump, many have described Bragg as funded or supported by George Soros, the billionaire supporter of liberal causes and general boogeyman for people on the right. Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a potential rival of Trump's for the Republican nomination in 2024, assailed Bragg as a Soros-funded prosecutor. And that's just one example. Now, this kind of mudslinging is extremely common in politics, and both sides do it. Republicans accuse progressives of being uh, coke ba- uh, uh, Republicans accuse progressives of being Soros-backed, and Democrats accuse Republicans of being backed by a whole host of malicious forces: the NRA, the Koch brothers, Peter Thiel, APAC, and on and on and on. There's nothing new here. That's just the way politics goes. And yet, the mainstream media is running partial cover for brag and defending against the accusation that he is backed by soros. Enter Glenn Kessler, the Washington Post fact checker. Now, I've liked some of Kessler's work in the past, but this was one fact check I couldn't get quite get past. He writes, quote, The incendiary claim that George Soros funded Alvin Bragg plays into anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that Soros, a Hungarian-American Holocaust survivor, is a wealthy puppet master who works behind the scenes to manipulate elections and further his goals. The Anti-Defamation League founded in 2018, uh, said in 2018 that Soros figures in a significant number of anti-Semitic tweets, end quote. Uh, And that's not the only uh, person raising this issue. Here's MSNBC addressing the matter. And please note the Chiron.
2: Joining me now is Peter Beinart, editor at large with Jewish Currents, an MSNBC political analyst and a
3: professor of journalism and political science at the Newmark School of Journalism here in New York City. Peter, thanks for joining us. Touched on this a few times in the last few nights, but I I don't think there's enough that you can say about this, because literally every response from an elected Republican has included the expression Soros backed district attorney. You know, I said to somebody, it's a dog whistle. They said it's a it's a it's
2: a train whistle. It's a blowhorn. It's not a dog whistle.
0: While it's undoubtedly true that some people oppose Soros' influence because they are racist and he's Jewish, look, many others oppose him simply because he's spent millions of dollars bankro- bankrolling political figures and causes that they don't like. Soros spent $27 million trying to prevent President George Bush's reelection in 2004. You're not an anti-Semite merely for noticing that that's a lot of cash. Now, as to the matter at hand, Kessler gives the claim that Soros backed Alvin Bragg three Pinocchios, saying it's ultimately misleading, even though he notes it's, quote, technically correct. The complicating factor here is that Soros did not fund Bragg directly. How it worked is that Bragg received support from an organization called Color of Change, which is a progressive criminal justice group, when he ran in 2021. Color of Change pledged to spend a million dollars on Bragg. A few days after making that pledge, Color of Change received a million dollars from George Soros. Now, Color of Change did not actually donate the full million to Bragg. Their final amount was just shy of half a million. Still, that was a large expenditure. Bragg's total haul during his campaign was just over $3 million. So that's a significant chunk of it. Money's fungible, so it doesn't really matter if the literal dollars that Soros gave to Color of Change were the ones they gave to brag, money is money. Now, I accept that for accuracy's sake, it'd be better to say Soros backed than Soros funded, but come on. I don't remember such careful distinctions being drawn when everyone in the mainstream media was bemoaning the Koch brothers' allegedly pernicious influence on political spending. Many mainstream outlets, including the Washington Post, have referred to individuals as Koch supported, Koch funded, And Coke-backed, even though the Cokes often send money, not directly to candidates, but via intermediary organizations. Now, disclaimer, I have worked for some of those organizations in the past, so take what I say with whatever grain of salt you like. But it's just silly to pretend that Alvin Bragg, who, as a progressive prosecutor and criminal justice reformer, was not funded, albeit albeit indirectly, by Soros. But look how Ben Collins, NBC's disinformation reporter, framed the issue. Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Ron DeSantis have all claimed Alvin Bragg is Soros-backed or aligned since news of the indictment dropped, Collins wrote. In reality, Soros has never met or spoken to Alvin Bragg, according to a CNBC story from last week. Never met? Well, I've never met or spoken with Charles Koch, but that has never stopped anyone in the mainstream media from referring to me and my magazine Reason as Koch-backed. So I really hope this new rule is applied evenly from now on. You're not considered to be backed by a specific billionaire, unless you're really like BFFs or something. Very, very silly stuff, Washington Post and others. So I don't know if you you follow this botcha, but it's so funny. (laughs)
1: I mean, like, right? You're exactly right. If the cokes like sneeze in the general direction of an organization that exists in some, you know, some state, right? They are coke backed. But if George Soros, a 90-plus-year-old billionaire, doesn't personally hand you a check, it's wrong to say that it's Soros-backed. This standard of misleading, though correct, right, isn't that just at the heart of so much of this, you know, disinformation industry, right, that exists primarily to call people racist, as in this case, in order to hide the massive class divide that liberals, especially liberal elites in the media, are benefiting fitting from kudos Robbie what a great radar
0: thank you thank you and you know I get so annoyed with this um, the kind of you know follow the money sort of um, sort of obsession uh, journalistically reporting in mainstream and progressive outlets that's always true for conservative causes you know the NRA the NRA we hear that all all, all the time how you know how much money do they get from the NRA and so on um, which which you know that's fine call that if you disagree with those groups and you think what they're spending on is bad Absolutely. You should criticize it. Um, But like, that's just what Republicans are doing here. It's not, you know, a dog whistle or a or a a train whistle, as uh, in that MSNBC clip, the host said, you know, to any criticism of George Soros is anti-Semitic. Like, that's that's just that's not fair to people who disagree with the policies that George Soros uh, represents. I don't even. I don't disagree with all of his policies. I'm sure I disagree with some of them. Uh, but you're al- like you're allowed to criticize money, and the influence of money in politics, and the views that these very wealthy people have without. Well, oh, you're a racist if you say that. That doesn't. That's just that. Like that's not fair to the democratic process. We get to dissent. We get to disagree. If people are saying racist things about him, sure, that's bad. Shouldn't do that. I'm sure there are some of those people out there. Um, that is not the criticism here. The criticism here is that he supports uh, a kind of. Uh, agenda, Soros does, for criminal justice, for prosecutors that they don't like. And they, they don't like the priorities. They don't like that this this figure, Alvin Bragg, is, you know, obsessed with bringing Trump to justice for the alleged uh, campaign finance violation. At the same time, again, in the conservative worldview, uh, that prosecutors like him some of which, again, have taken funding, maybe indirectly from George Soros, are not prioritizing uh, the kind of crime issues that uh, so many Americans are, are fearful of right now, the, the violence in our streets, the robberies, the carjackings, the, the assaults by repeat offenders, by people who were just left out, the, 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 min- the min- mentally ill people. Um, in the streets who aren't being uh, taken care of or put anywhere like that is something that a lot of not just a lot of Republicans in fact a lot of independents and, and our former Democrats like yourself I know are are, are very worried about is going to be a winning issue for the GOP because Democrats don't appear to be taking it seriously enough.
1: Indeed, uh, my own radar is about exactly that, um, and I just totally agree with you. No individual persons bad behavior should be protected by their ethnicity. And when you have people in the mainstream media who are part of the elites demanding that we not criticize someone based on their ethnicity, there's more often than not a class divide that's being hidden from us and protected.
0: Indeed. All right, well, I'm looking forward to your radar as well, Bacha. There'll be more rising right after this. What's on your radar, Bacha?
1: A new Fox News report by Bill Melugin revealed that the L.A. County Board of Supervisors has added a proposal to Tuesday's agenda seeking to depopulate Los Angeles jails by telling law enforcement and prosecutors to expand the use of the cite and release practice, which gives offenders a citation rather than booking them formally in jail. The practice was greatly expanded during COVID to counteract crowded jails, hotbeds of transmission, as was an emergency bail schedule, which the LA County's proposal to depopulate and decarcerate the Los Angeles County jails also calls for. The proposal also demands the sheriff cite and release anyone whose bail is set at $50,000 or less, which, as the vice president of the union representing L.A. County prosecutors pointed out, would mean releasing people accused of possession of child porn, domestic violence, illegally carrying a firearm, residential burglary, robbery, and assault with a firearm. That's right. At a time of record carjackings, when the murder of black Americans is at a high in some cities that surpasses that of the 90s, LA is looking for ways to decarcerate people who have assaulted others with a firearm or been caught illegally possessing a gun and men who hit their wives, the number one predictor for murder among women. It's pretty amazing that the side that has been advocating for gun control and for restricting the legal purchase of firearms is now freely admitting that it has zero intention of imprisoning people with illegal guns. The right often accuses the left of wanting to confiscate the guns of law abiding citizens while ceding the streets to criminals and their illegal guns. And this LA County proposal sure seems to confirm that view. They are downgrading possession of an illegal weapon to the equivalent of drinking beer in a park while it remains a felony in California to sell or even give away an assault weapon. Meanwhile, the majority of L.A.'s 400 homicides last year were the result of urban street fighting. In other words, handguns. In 2021, when homicide rates started to spike, arrests for gun-related offenses went up 300%. It is absolutely unthinkable how much higher the murder rate will go if this decarceration ploy is implemented. Why do progressives hate guns except when it comes to criminals shooting each other in the street? Why do career criminals have the singular right to own firearms in their view? If anyone thinks this is an unfair characterization and these LA County board supervisors an aberration of the progressive position on guns, let those who oppose it stand up and have their voices counted. But they won't because it is representative of the progressive point of view on policing, which is to side with criminals over their victims. Think of Alvin Bragg, a man who upgraded a payoff to a porn star to a felony, yet downgraded the illegal possession of guns and robbery to a misdemeanor. Or think of the defund the police movement that ripped through the nation in 2020, which advocated sending social workers to talk to criminals instead of cops to arrest them. In its wake, we've seen a mass retirement of police officers sick of being tarred as the worst of them, sick of arresting criminals who are let back on the streets the next day by prosecutors who will not indict them. The cops know it, the prosecutors know it, and the career criminals know it. There's a lot of gaslighting around this, of course. Those of us who believe in the rule of law, who think crime is unacceptable, who totally reject the idea that our neighbors should just resign themselves to elevated levels of carjackings, robbery, rape, and murder, are frequently told that defund the police is a myth. The Biden administration has funded the police beyond what progressives wanted, we're told. Those of us who think it's disgusting and racist to consign thousands of Black children and grandparents and men and women who are themselves law-abiding to become 70% of the murder victims. victims in this country and 54% of the victims of violent crime, despite being just 13% of the nation, are frequently told that the defund the police movement that created much of this crime that we rail against is a figment of our imaginations. Red states have higher murder rates, we're told. It's nonsense. Red states have higher murder rates, but it's the blue cities within them where most of the murder is happening. We know that police are quitting because of the way they were treated in 2020 because they tell us that we know that progressive DAs refuse to prosecute violent criminals leading to their arrest and to an epidemic of reoffending. We know that in LA, which is just 9% black, black Angelenos make up 41% of the victims of gun violence and murder. Why is that okay? It's not defund literally sure but a more general approach to decarceration that we're seeing in liberal cities that is absolutely having an impact on everything from quality of life issues to murder. And it didn't start with George Floyd. Think back to Michelle Alexander's 2010 book, The New Jim Crow, which argued that mass incarceration was a new form of racial discrimination designed to penalize people for being poor and black. To read it, you'd think that everyone in jail was there for some kind of nonviolent marijuana offense when the truth is pretty much the opposite. The vast majority of people in prison are there for violent crimes. In fact, and this is difficult to say, there's evidence that we aren't locking up enough people. We let a lot of killers go free, for example. The close rate for murder in the U.S. is embarrassing, and it is much, much worse for black Americans in every city. In just California, for example, the homicide clearance rate for whites is 75%, but for black Californians, it's just 44%. Over half of the people who murder black people go free. Why isn't that the new Jim Crow, accepting that murderers who kill Black Americans have over a 50% chance of getting away with it? I like to believe that progressives advocating for this stuff truly see God's child in everyone, including the most hardened criminals. The LA proposal was part of what its proponents called a care-first, jail-last agenda. But here's the thing. When it comes to criminals and their victims, you really do actually have to choose who you're going to care about. And in their zeal to advocate for the rights of criminals, they've put them ahead of their victims time and time again in a way that just reeks of the privilege of people who have never been victimized by violent crime and don't know anybody who has. It's progressive compassion curdled into cruelty, and it has got to stop. So Robbie, yeah, where are you on this proposal? I mean, what's the libertarian position <laughs> when it comes to to violent crime?
0: Well, look, you and I probably have some differences on criminal justice uh, issues. I, I, I do. Well, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I do certainly want to. Um, decarcerate people who are no longer a threat to society which includes like a lot of people who've been pr- in prison for decades uh, many of them over uh, you know because of the crack cocaine epidemic or drug related issues that weren't really violent and we actually know you know when you age past a certain point we know you're basically at very little risk of reoffending or engaging in violent crime um, that we could we could release a lot of those people you know, they cost us money to incarcerate them it's just not a it, it's not a good system. It's not keeping us safe. Then there's a category of people, you know, we know the ages, for instance, where, where violence is much more likely. And I agree with you that, you know, progressives really got to pick a lane here, because on one hand, you know, they respond to, uh, you know, rising gun homicides, and they say, well, guns are the problem. You know, we got we to ban guns. We got to get guns off the street. And I'm like, well, OK, if we're g- the first thing we could do—you know, I support gun rights, I support the Second Amendment, but the first thing we could do would be to stop or would it be to arrest people who have guns illegally, who have criminal records or, you know, using them or, or should not have access to guns with the laws on the book already. And then progressives will say, well, no, we don't want to arrest more people. You, well, you can't have it both ways. I mean, I, either we should right. just like we should truly let everyone have guns. We shouldn't police it at all. If you're saying it shouldn't be policed, I don't know what like what what you 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 want guns to like magically disappear. You got to arrest people for using them improperly or for having them illegally. You got to start with that. If you want a more a wider gun control regime, but you're not even willing to do that, it doesn't make any sense to to have even more gun laws if you're not going to enforce them. So I don't understand. <laughs> like it's got to be one or the other here. And we could start by arresting people. For, for having, because we know in, in most, the overwhelming amount of crime that we see is committed with handguns where the person who has it, that's an illegal weapon, they're not supposed to have it because they already have an, an uh, arrest on the record or something like that. Fine, enforce that. I'm fine with enforcing that. But, the, but progressives don't actually want to enforce that. So, uh, so what are we going to do? Right.
1: And, and that's why I say, look, it's possible that you know, there are a lot of progressives who are against this. Right? it's possible that jamal bowman who you know stood on the capitol screaming about what about the children what about the children right that yeah. he does not agree that we should be decarcerating people for illegal gun possession let him stand up and say that let them take a stand and say actually not this because my suspicion is is that they would be very on board with something like this and and, mm-hmm. and just like you said it really speaks to a real problem at the heart of the progressive position right now when it comes to crime
0: yeah, they think they can—like, there's no magic wand to wave and make all the guns, like, magically turn into pixie dust or something. Like, that That option doesn't exist, but that is the way so many progressives talk about crime, and particularly gun crime these days. It's just—it's not serious, so I, 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 I can't take it very seriously. But uh, thank you so much for uh, addressing this subject, Baja. More Rising right after this. President Joe Biden's summit for democracy, Ukraine, Poland, and six other European countries signed an open letter asking the chief executives of prominent social media companies, including Meta, the parent company of Facebook, to take more aggressive steps to halt the spread of false news on their platforms. According to the New York Times, the letter, which was released last Wednesday, asked Meta to take action, quote, "...against disinformation that undermines our peace and stability, and to eradicate efforts on their platforms to weaken our support to Ukraine amid Russia's war of aggression."
1: Meta released a statement on Wednesday saying that the company was already taking significant steps against misinformation related to the war in Ukraine, including removing misleading information, quote, likely to cause imminent harm or violence, and using a third-party fact-checking service to determine if posts contain false claims, which are then given lower visibility, the New York Times has reported. Meta said it was also restricting access to RT, Russia's state-financed international cable network, and Sputnik, Russian government-run news and commentary site, which, according to the New York Times, have disseminated misinformation. Twitter Frials author Michael Schallenberger tweeted, this is totalitarianism. Schallenberger joins us now to wake in. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. So walk us through why it is so incredibly dangerous to have private social media companies essentially picking a side in a conflict and then using their power to silence any kind of discussion that doesn't compute with that.
3: Well, I just think the first thing we have to understand is that here's a case of governments, and this has included the US government, demanding censorship by social media companies. That's a violation of the First Amendment. Um, It's also a violation of the First Amendment for the U.S. government to fund think tanks or academic institutions like the Stanford Internet Observatory to demand censorship by social media companies. But I think what we're seeing here is just creeping totalitarianism, the censorship industrial complex that my colleagues and I who had access to the Twitter files have described and documented and the Similar to the Facebook files released by the Attorneys General of Missouri and and Louisiana also just show a very large network of government-funded organizations demanding and successfully getting censorship by social media companies, including of accurate information, though I hasten to point out that the First Amendment also protects uh, people sharing inaccurate information or opinions, and often we know that uh, information that we think might be inaccurate later it turns out to be accurate or at least a valid um, kind of hypothesis or speculation.
0: It's getting to the point where if I hear, uh, if I read reporting in the mainstream media or I hear you know national security advisors or health advisors, government uh, expert type people warning about misinformation or disinformation, it's just like a red flag, I see a red flag because they're using this term now with such frequency to describe dissenting views, some of which I think are wrong, some of which I think are right. And as you point out, it doesn't matter from the standpoint of the First Amendment. But there's an attempt now by by various mainstream forces to describe everything as as misinformation, and then there's a kind of implication that it's foreign-based, and it's like invading our country and invading our platforms, and it's a national security issue if we're not taking it more seriously, when really it's just disagreement over what the policy should be. And, and it's interesting that the side that purports to be caring about democracy, the integrity of democracy, is the one saying they have to, we have to limit—the the, the government, et cetera, has to limit your access to more of this different information.
3: Yes, Robbie. I think you've really hit on an important point here, which is that language is very powerful. And there's something about these words, disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, that is different than saying, you know, differing opinions or different points of view. It suggests that there's some sort of malign actor, there's somebody with bad intentions, maybe terrorists, maybe Russians. And in fact, what we've documented in the Twitter files and what we've seen in the Facebook files are ordinary people often expressing concerns, legitimate concerns, often just describing true vaccine side effects, other people questioning where the coronavirus came from, including the very legitimate question of whether it may have come from a laboratory in Wuhan. Those are all being labeled disinformation and misinformation. So Robbie, I think you're absolutely correct. I think we need to now, when we hear those words, We need to understand that in most cases, the people using them are making the case for censorship, and that is something that our First Amendment and American culture simply doesn't allow. We allow for a variety of opinions, um, and we need to protect that because we have seen this kind of creeping totalitarianism.
0: And what is your view of the approach uh, that Meta has taken with respect to fact-checking? You know, it's, it's interesting how the various uh, companies have tried to handle this. Facebook said, OK, well, we're going to hire these third-party organizations. We're going to try to get an ideological mix. Maybe they said that. They don't have much of an ideological mix. I think they have some token ones on the right. It's, it's mostly a lot of uh, very f- far-left uh, activist kind of organizations that are going to fact-check things, and then they have power to kind of, you know, blur the content or have some gatekeeping with content that they don't approve of. Um, I- I've seen them do this to content that where, where I think they've unquestionably aired, particularly in the COVID and climate change space. You know, I know these are things you've specialized in, so you've probably seen this, some of this as well. You know, it'd be fine if they were just also producing content, I think, saying, no, this is wrong. That's just how it's supposed to work. You could have your content saying I'm wrong. I have my content saying you're wrong, and let readers decide. But they like, have the power, which, which it's not even meta doing it. Meta deputized them to do this, essentially. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think it's working out very well. I much prefer Twitter's kind of community notes function, where like, anyone can fact check anything, and then you can fact check the fact check, and you can fact check the fact check of the fact check. Seems to be working better. What, what's your view of these things?
3: Yeah, I think there's a there's, there's a lot in there. I mean, I think one of the first important things, Robbie, is that oftentimes the labeling by the social media platforms has been a form of mis or disinformation. So, for example, we saw uh, Facebook, we saw Twitter labeling the accurate New York Post article about Hunter Biden's laptop as uh, misinformation or suspected information or suspected hack and leak information that actually served to discredit that information in the minds of many voters. We saw Twitter uh, post a warning on a tweet by a Harvard University professor simply expressing his view that children did not need to be vaccinated. We've seen multiple instances of the social media platforms labeling information in ways that actually spread disinformation. Um, In my case, Facebook censored me through a third party organization when they were then sued for it in court, they said, well, it wasn't really a fact check. It was just opinion, um, the opinion of Facebook. And so on the one hand, you would say, well, that's fine. They have a right to free speech, but then what are my rights enabled to respond to that? Why not just allow the social media platforms in the first place to have debate? If there's different views of these things, why not just have the debate? Why do the social media platforms uh, need to be doing this? I think the, the immediate answer is transparency. We need to have transparency into into what content moderation decisions are being made, how and why they're being made. And we also need transparency into government involvement in requesting those forms of censorship, including labeling.
1: Hmm. Right. It's so Orwellian, right? Like in the name of democracy, we must You know abandon our first amendment principle which is the bedrock of our democracy right in the name of protecting ukraine's democracy we must censor everything that doesn't comport with our view here's my question to you i mean is this just a blatant power grab a way of saying we're no longer gonna fight for what we think is right in the court of public opinion. We're simply going to impose it by silencing everybody who disagrees. Or do you think that the people doing this truly believe in what they're saying? And in that case, how do we get them to see what we can so easily see, which is that your democracy is the work of hearing the side you disagree with and nothing you create by by getting rid of that is going to be worthy of being called a democracy.
3: Yeah, well, I think um, exactly what you said, Yeah, I mean, I think you you know that uh, part of the history here is this is a reaction by media and cultural elites to the rise of social media in general, and in particular to the election of Trump in 2016. That resulted in what I think can be described as an elite panic and a desire by the intelligence community and their affiliated and funded think tanks to basically demand that social media start censoring disfavored voices. It's not just the censorship, though. It's also we saw many disinformation campaigns. The, one of the most famous was the has been the mislabeling of Trump supporters as Russian bots, done in something called Hamilton 68. So I think the people demanding the censorship, who I've studied pretty carefully, are true believers. They're just very dogmatic. I think many of them are basically snobs. I don't, I think, sorry to use the word, but I think that's the mm-hmm. most accurate word for describing people who just think they're better than ordinary people. They know what's best for people. I mean, you can see it when you, when they're saying you should censor, which is happened both on Twitter and Facebook, you should censor people sharing stories about vaccine side effects because we wouldn't want people to get the wrong idea like not getting the vaccine. That's paternalism, that's elitism, and to the extent that the U.S. government was involved, it's plainly a violation of the First Amendment. Mm. Michael Schellenberger,
0: thank you so much for joining us.
1: A congressional effort to end the prosecution against WikiLeaks' Julian Assange is underway, Representative Rashida Tlaib is sending a letter to her house colleagues that calls on the Department of Justice to drop charges against Julian Assange and end its effort to extradite him from his detention in Belmarsh Prison in the UK. The Justice Department has charged Assange, who is the publisher of WikiLeaks, for publishing classified information.
0: Now that letter, a copy of which was obtained by The Intercept, is in the signature gathering phase and has not yet been sent to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted this weekend, I'm calling for the release of Julian Assange. His charges should be dropped. The United States of America must defend the First Amendment and protect freedom of the press. It's one of the greatest freedoms any nation can have. So here is a situation, uh, a situation, you know, the kind of thing we cover here on this show that I think would be baffling to many mainstream people. Here you have a left, Progressive Democrat, Rashida Tlaib, you know, disliked by Republicans, and you have Marjorie Taylor Green, arch conservative, Trumpist, Trumpy Republican who mainstream Democrats think is crazy, both agree, free Julian Assange, which is something that libertarians have been talking about this, socialists have been talking about this, people who still respect. The First Amendment and free speech in mainstream circles, although I think that's a shrinking number, unfortunately, free Julian Assange. Uh, there is agree. here. Like, here's a good bipartisan issue. It's just not the kind of bipartisanship that uh, elite voices think is good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you just, you love to see it, right? I mean, you love to see this kind of thing left and right coming together over something as important as the First Amendment. And honestly, what is more important than the First Amendment? Um, you know, I, it remains to be seen whether... Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene intends to sign on to Rashida Tlaib's right. letter. I really hope she does. And that this is an too. attempt to sort of steal the thunder and and, and start her own initiative. Um, you know, it's really a moment in which I, I really hope we're gonna see some bipartisan support for this because this is extremely important. It is a huge violation of the First Amendment that you can even be charged with the Espionage Espionage Act. Um, I I just don't see how there's any debate around this. And it, it, it's, you know, disheartening that. That there that there does seem to be a debate about this. Um, you know, that, that President Trump didn't um, didn't didn't um, uh, f- uh, free Julian Assange or, or, or cancel the extradition order and that, you know, there is still this effort to, to penalize him for what was essentially effectively an act of speech. So it's just great to see this effort. Kudos to Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, I don't say that a lot, um, for starting it. And um, I hope to see Marjorie Taylor Greene sign on to that letter and bring along with her all of the influence she has in her party, which is non-negligible at this point.
0: It's always worth remembering remembering Remembering, reflecting on what Assange is being—has had his life destroyed over. He was the leader of WikiLeaks. He published information that he obtained through a third party that the government didn't want us—the U.S. government didn't want you to know about, that exposed them for some hypocrisies and some criminal behavior. And for that, again, that's journalism. That's something the Washington Post does and the New York Times does and so on and so forth. That's something we do or it's something journalists should aspire to do more of, to hold the powerful to account by telling you information they did not want you to know. I mean, how many times have I brought up the over-classification problem where no wonder every political figure has boxes of documents that are technically classified um, in their, in their you know, in their uh, in their parking garage or something, because there's just too much secrecy. He tried to shine. Julie Assange tried to shine a light. On some of that stuff to make it not secret, the things they really didn't want you to know about. And for that, he's been—he was under uh, effectively trapped in an embassy in the UK for years. Uh, And now he's in, and and then eventually they got him. He's been in prison there in the UK. There's been an effort to bring him to the U.S. His health has deteriorated through all of this uh, situation. We've, you know, had people on the show who testify to his. His exact condition—it is not good. We've had his brother on the show. Uh, It's—it's it's awful. They're slowly killing this man for an act of journalism. The U.S. could end this. They could just say he's not going to be prosecuted. He, he should be pardoned, commuted, whatever it takes. Uh, he should be celebrated, actually, for what he did. And 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 it would be a great move for whoever the president is right now. The president is Joe Biden to, to go forward and do that. But uh, but you know, members of both parties, they talk a good game on free speech, but when it, you know, when it was their government that was embarrassed, they want to drop the hammer.
1: Right. And in fact, you know, the far reaching impact of what he published, we're certainly still feeling it now in terms of the, that switch that the Democratic Party underwent. Um, in terms of its perception of Russia, right? You know, from seeing Russia as a a potential partner in the fight against China, to seeing Russia as the source of all evil, right? And arguably that started, you know, certainly we saw that already, you know, by the time Trump got into office, right? But arguably it started with Julian Assange publishing information that was embarrassing to democratic elites, and for which they have never forgiven him, um, and never forgiven the source of that information. Um, which just completely eviscerated um, the Democratic Party's approach to foreign policy and reorganized it and reshaped it around defending um, the ego and the reputation of, you know, its elites. So I think that the impact is is has been huge. We're still feeling it now. Uh, you what you would want to see is both parties fighting over taking um, credit for commuting, you know, the charges against Julian Assange. Right. That that's what you would want to see. So you know, if this is a new effort from Rashida Tlaib and Marjorie Taylor Greene to 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 either come together or fight over who's going to be who's going to be pushing this, this is just exactly the kind. Of thing you want to see from elected officials?
0: Yeah, well said. And we'll have actually more to say about Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, a little bit. She had a, a, a some mainstream media coverage of her, a, a, a CBS 60 Minutes interview with with her, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on the show. We'll have more rising right after this.
1: The New York Times no longer enjoys verified status on Twitter after Elon Musk pulled its blue checkmark on Sunday. Musk previously announced the rollout of Twitter Blue, a paid monthly subscription of $8 for individuals and $1,000 for organizations to maintain their blue checkmarks.
0: The move drew ire from critics, who maintained that Musk should step down as head of Twitter, pointing to his decision to strip one of the top news organizations' blue-check status, but granting right-wing accounts a legacy badge instead. Some Twitter users accused the chief of Twitter of bias. The account Politics First tweeted this, The bias is unreal, and we're living in dangerous times where the owner of this platform controls a social media app with political bias. So here's what happened. So Elon Musk said this was going to be the deadline... If you had a blue check mark, you were going to lose it unless you subscribe to Twitter Blue. You have to subscribe to Twitter Blue to have the check mark. Um, and then some media companies and various people, including the New York Times, said, well, very huffy, well, we're not going to pay for this. We don't need it. So Elon Musk said, oh, really? You don't need it? So then he just took it from the New York Times and then did not follow through and take it from anyone else. So now if you scroll over, so for instance, I have a blue check mark, but I, I don't pay for Twitter blue. If you scroll over my name and any, anybody else, it says this account is verified because it's a legacy verification or has Twitter blue. So it seems to me like they're not gonna, I mean, I don't know, it, it, things seem to change on Twitter on <laughs> a daily basis. Seems like they're not gonna take blue checks from people. Uh, it's just in the future, if you want one, the only way to get it is Twitter Blue. And they're creating uncertainty about whether people who have it have it because of Twitter Blue or because of the legacy checkmark. Um, this was the case for you as well, Bacha. I just checked for you. So,
1: Yes, I was very much looking forward to April 1st, to losing my Blue checkmark, so it would be clear to everybody that I had not paid for it. Um, and yet now I still have it. And it's, you know, <laughs> um, you know I, I think that he... Look, um, part of me really respects his sort of trial and error approach. I think that's the way to run a business: try something, see if it works, not be afraid to make mistakes or fail because you'll sort of recalibrate. I think that's kind of a form of genius, um, especially in a high stakes situation. I certainly wouldn't have the stomach to do what he's doing, but on the other hand, you know, I, I like it, it, you know, it, it's it's it does it is unseemly to be sort of. Um, Like I'm not picking a fight with the New York Times. I'm totally okay with that, right? The idea that there's some sort of like political bias involved in just not respecting the New York Times I think is ridiculous. Like he does not have to respect the New York Times. He can mess around with them. Like that is not a sort of great civil rights Crisis of our mm-hmm. times, right? But on the other hand, his penchant for, you know, what you once put Robbie so elegantly. On the one hand, he wants to be, um, you know, the chief administrator, the adjudicator, the one sort of, you know, separating out the, you know, the nonsense from the truth. On the other hand, he wants to be a player in the game, and you can't both be the person, sort of, as you know, in in, in parlance, you will understand, you can't both be the dungeon master and a character. Did I get that right, Robbie? That's right. Is that a, a good?
0: That is exactly right. <laughs> Thank. You. Yes. Uh, For for our more sporty viewers out there, you can't be the referee and the quarterback. I think is basically what he aspires to be. I mean, he he is he has he has seemingly tweaked Twitter's recommendation algorithm to give his own tweets even more um, more views. Which look, it's his company. He can do whatever he wants, but uh, it's it's I, I think it's a little bit rich to complain about bias and those kinds of things on the platform, and then like. Take you a action to strip the New York Times of its Twitter account. like. You could, at that point, you're just saying this is my company, and I'm doing what I want to, which again, it's fine. You can do that, but you can't really pretend to have like a loftier right. principle I, at play. I, I will
1: say, <laughs> I will say, I think people who say that stripping the New York Times of its blue check is politically motivated or reflects a political bias are sort of telling on themselves, right? It's sort of <laughs> an yeah. admission that the New York Times is like totally solidly um, on the side of the Democrats, which obviously is obvious to everybody, right? But it's sort of an admission from that side as well. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry, I can't go. You know, I can't. And talk like go a whole segment on Elon Musk and Twitter without mentioning, you know, his ties to the CCP. We know that you know when he was tweeting about the lab leak theory, he got you know, you know, informed in low uncertain terms from you know China's state-run media that he better not. You know, they used a Chinese saying that that means you know don't bite the, the hand that feeds you. And of course, you know, the CCP is the hand that feeds Elon Musk. His entire supply chain runs through China. Um, so I, you know, he is deeply compromised when it comes to free speech issues. Um, But like you, Robbie, I mean, it's his platform. Um, He can do what he wants with it. I do agree, you know, even though Mm -hmm. I was extremely critical of Twitter before he took over for censoring conservatives, you know, something else has gone wrong. I mean, it's clear that the platform is not. I used to spend a lot of time on Twitter. I, you know, my. My, my spouse is extremely happy that I spend much less time on Twitter now because there's just something has, has changed about it and it, you know on the one hand it, it, it you have to admit it is more fair to conservatives now and that is a very good thing. but on the other hand, you know it's just there is I'm, and I, I struggle to figure out like what exactly is it that is you know that's been compromised but something has been lost. Yeah. I don't know if you, if you feel that as well.
0: I completely agree. So two things right now are very wrong with Twitter in my view. One, engagement is way down for me. It sounds like it is for you. It's down for a lot of people I know. This, It's not... It's not since Elon's takeover. It, it, it ha- this happened. This started before that, but Elon's takeover has not improved this whatsoever, as far as I can tell. Um, that, uh, and, and actually, they released part of the algorithm. Uh, again, Elon Musk, I appreciate—the thing I most appreciate about his takeover is increased transparency about how the previous administration ran things. I think that's helpful. So he released the algorithm, but it, it says right there in the algorithm, if you include a link— to an an offsite link, like let's say you write an article and you tweet a link to your article, that tweet gets nuked, no one's gonna see it. Um, Likes and retweets help you, comments barely help you. Uh, Video helps you, but links, again, they kill you, you're dead in the water. And there's a lot in there about how the algorithm is making decisions that I think are bad. And again, that's not — but Elon hasn't changed that. Maybe he will, but he should change that. The other thing that's really wrong is the recommendations, the For You tab, you know, what it thinks you want to see. That is worse than ever, and that has gotten, in my view, markedly worse in in, in recent weeks. It now shows me content totally disconnected to what I want to see. I want to see like I, I, it, Twitter used to. Give me the highlights I might have missed. Like, if you tweeted over the weekend, Bacha, it used to know, I want to see what Bacha has to say. I want to see what some of my colleagues at the, at the Hill and at Reason want to say. A couple other high-profile people I, I, I follow, uh, your, you know, Megan McArdle, Nate Silver, uh, Matt Iglesias, you know, the, 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 the punditocracy, you know, the ecosystem of, of blogger pundits on Twitter. It used to show me all those. Now, it, it, like, it's just off. The recommendation is way, 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 way off. Uh, actually it shows me more things that kind of just like make me mad, which I don't know if that's a deliberate choice. It's definitely not a healthy one. Like I see more crazy COVID people kind of, which I, again, I don't, I don't want to engage with that. I don't, I don't want to see it at all. I don't follow those people. I don't, I don't follow, you know, people who are still, you know, think they're going to like have disabling long COVID if they leave their bedrooms. Like I, I, but that's being recommended to me sometimes, which I don't get. So, uh, so anyway, those are the things I think are not improvements at all right now, and I would like them. (laughs) I I think it would be great if we could go back again to the way things were in like the 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018 period, except without the additional censorship of dissent of the right and that, that was ramping up during that period and then really came to a head because of the elections and because of COVID. So let's take Let's take the policies of non-bias and non-censorship that Elon purports to want to implement, and then go, but then also not have this like hostility to, to news coverage and links that, the, the way it used to be. That would be the best of both worlds, from my standpoint. I'm not sure what's standing in the way of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of me worries that the thing that's worse about it is that, is like what you said, that, you know, things that are getting elevated are not necessarily things that I've chosen to be informed about. I get a lot of videos of um, brawls for some reason, Hmm. um, which, like, they're not that frequent, but I know that the right has been sort of circulating a lot of them. My my Twitter feed is very evenly balanced. There's a you can go somewhere and check. There's you could put in your handle and it will tell you what percentage you follow that are right wing and what percentage are left wing. And I'm it's pretty even for me. But I'm getting a lot less from the left now, which I don't like because you want to be able to check yourself. You want to be able to you know see what the other side is saying. You know whatever whatever the topic is, you want to kind of get that balance. Um, but to I worry a little bit like well, am I complaining about? What is effectively the democratization of the platform, right? Is this just what it looks like when people can buy a blue mm-hmm. check mark and get elevated and go viral in a way that, like, it was very hard to do before when you were deprioritized versus places like the New York Times, right? I mean, is that ju- is that just what's happening here? That it's a more equitable system and thus feeding us less of what we've chosen and more of who has chosen to pay for um, their blue check? I mean, it's a really difficult question. When he announced that the blue checks would be for sale, I totally support. That. I thought that was great, because I thought it was kind of ridiculous that some person in Twitter was deciding who was elite status enough to get this status symbol, right? So I, I thought yeah. that was really cool, and I still think it's really cool that it has been democratized in that way. Um, at the same time, you know, I am complaining about the platform and I'm not spending any more time there. So, you know, it's it's really an interesting, I'm you know, it's interesting to see what, what, what his next moves will be.
0: Yeah, very much so. It just seems not good from a business standpoint because, like, I'm, I'm tweeting less. I, I'm on the pla- – I'm I, like, you can look over time. I'm definitely – I'm tweeting way, 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 way less than I used to. And it's because I'm not seeing things I care about, so I'm not, like, responding to people or retweeting people right. or getting to, like, long – remember, we used to have arguments totally. on Twitter. You used to debate people back and forth. Totally. Um, and even before that, I was doing that on Facebook. And then Facebook kind of changed some things. I started seeing less news-related content. It got less debatey, so I moved off of it. I, I was more active in that way on Twitter. And then Twitter's gone that road too. So I'm just I'm not going to be engaged in it. And to the extent these companies they want your your attention because they're selling ads, so they you know they want you watching. So it just doesn't seem to make. I don't think it's good, and it doesn't seem to make good business sense to me. But. Just some some free consultant advice from a from a frequent user of the platform, and I would pay for it. I would d- definitely pay for it if the service was comparable to the way it used to be. I wouldn't pay for it in its current incarnation. It doesn't seem at all even close to worth it. Um, but I but I would be willing to pay with it. I agree with you that the random elites get cred is not a great system either. So anyway. yeah, if he
1: had just shown up and said, um, "Give me five dollars a month, and I will." the only thing I'll stop doing is censoring conservatives, right? So it yeah. would have fixed the problem that even somebody like me, who's, a, I'm not a conservative, but I didn't like that conservatives were clearly being censored, right? Like if he was like, just pay me to fix that problem and everything else will stay the same, I think I would have probably preferred that to, to, to what's, what's going on now, which I, yeah. I still, I can't really quite put my finger on it, but uh, you're getting closer.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally agree. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. And podcaster Joe Rogan. welcomed Twitter Files journalist Michael Schellenberger onto his podcast where they discussed the pharmaceutical industry's brainwashing of the left. Let's take a look.
4: The fact that no one has a problem with all of the different remedies that were effective against COVID being suppressed... And that there was one narrative, and that narrative was connected to the emergency use authorization, which is only applicable if there's no other treatments. Right. The fact that this is not that that, that was never discussed, and that people weren't, but it's also the terror of this impending pandemic that's going to take out your loved ones. And you know Robert Malone talked about that on the podcast, that it creates this mass formation psychosis, that you have this one thing that people are looking at as the savior, and right. any suppression of that or any resistance of that, you are gonna ruin my life. I'm trying to get back to work. Right. I'm trying to make society do it, do the thing. But, and you can't even be like, hey, but maybe we should see studies. Hey, but where's the data? Hey, right. why are they telling pregnant women they can take it? There's no studies on pregnant women.
0: Here to discuss with us is Twitter Files author Michael Schellenberger himself. Thank you for joining us again, Michael. My pleasure. So we, uh, our audience, I think, has a lot of interest in Joe Rogan and obviously the subjects he covers and the people he has on his show. Uh, You know, I I think there was a lot of of skepticism and dissent and contrarianism on the subjects we talk about that's been healthily expressed um, on that show. What was the experience like of, of doing it? Oh, it's such a
3: pleasure. I mean, Joe, I think is a national treasure, you know, it's not, you know, he's, he's, you know, he I mean, where else can you get three hours of being able to sit down with somebody with such a large audience? I mean, I think it's really, I think we don't appreciate enough how important that is. I mean, these issues are complex. And when we do shorter segments, as journalists, we're always trying to do our best to summarize it. But you just need that longer format to get into the weeds and the complexities. So for me, I think Joe Rogan is a really important voice. I think that's why they've tried to cancel him repeatedly. It's very threatening. And I just think also, you know, we don't, not, we don't, we don't always get it right. And I think um, Joe and, and, and certainly me and many others, our views evolve. And I think that it's nice to have that kind of time and platform to be able to go through the ways in which our thinking has been changing, um, hopefully, and in most cases, I think in response to new information.
1: Right. So they've tried to cancel him many times. They've also tried to cancel you and um, most recently even members of our Congress. Um, You know, you're you're a guy who's was progressive, is on the left. What was that experience like of testifying before Congress about the Twitter files and having congressional members, Democrats, impugn your character and attack you in such a, a horrible, horrible way? What was that like?
3: You know, at, at first, it's sort of startling because you're being insulted publicly, and that's just not pleasant to be insulted publicly. I don't think anybody enjoys that. But it quickly got so over the top that it became funny. And I think we started laughing a bit. I think I found it funnier at first. It, and by the way, it wasn't the first time I'd been insulted by members of Congress. I've, been, I've testified about uh, eight times over the last eight or nine times. I can't remember over the last three years. You know, at one point, I think a member of Congress made a sexual innuendo that I don't know that she meant to make, accusing Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss and me of being in a threesome. The whole room laughed. I then said there were many more people involved than that. The room (laughs) laughed again. So I think there was some, you know, there was some comic relief um, amidst the harassment basically. Uh,
0: It's interesting to, uh, yeah, we, we laughed at that here in the studio as well. Uh, I think it's interesting to see some of the ideological shift going on with people, you know, people in the orbit of this show, people in your orbit. Uh, You know, Joe Rogan, I think, supported uh, explicitly. You know, Bernie Sanders, uh, at least in 2016, I I think in 2020 as well, uh, was someone I think who would have described himself as part of the populist anti-establishment left. But but due to the shift that's taking place where uh, kind of elite Voices, elite expert opinion is now uh, the more the more credentialed, the more well respected by national security and health experts. That's all part of the democratic consensus, which means the skeptics, the people who push back, it's not that they're necessarily part of the Republican consensus, but they're definitely not part of the Democratic consensus. So they. they um, they're, I think they're on friendlier terms almost with with Republicans. So it's interesting to see someone like Joe Rogan, you know, perhaps yourself, perhaps Matt Tybee, perhaps uh, Russell Brand, Bill, you know, all these people who I, I think, who I don't agree with on lots of stuff, but raise interesting points, but are no longer welcome, would have counted themselves maybe as Democrats, but just can't be Democrats now because of where Democrats are on all these issues.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, what you're describing is a real phenomenon where the people demanding the censorship, and I think people often waging these disinformation campaigns against accurate information, whether COVID, COVID vaccine side effects or Hunter Biden's laptop, um, these are elites, and they're reacting against a populist public, whether that's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. And that's the main dynamic. It's not a left-right dynamic as much as a top-down dynamic. I should say too for me i mean i graduated from high school in 1989 that year the supreme court ruled that we had the right to burn flags and that was something that progressives and democrats were very happy about as i was at the time i think defending a very broad definition of first amendment rights for me has always been a liberal position I think it's we clearly see now the people that had suffered most of the censorship, not all of it were more of the populist right and so you've seen more Republicans. Taking a stronger First Amendment stance than Democrats right now, but I do think that that confusion around left and right. um, becomes a lot less confusing when you understand that what you're really looking at is a kind of elite versus populist dynamic. Where I just think ordinary folks want a lot more free speech, and they would like to be able to share their views on social media without being censored by people who think that they're better than them. And so I find myself annoyed by it. And I find myself, you know, I'm I have some pretty conventional liberal views on a bunch of things, including things like NATO and even things like vaccines. But when when you start seeing you know people engaging in censorship in such a snobby elitist way, it's offensive. Um, I think it's offensive to a lot of us. And I think it actually has the impact of making us rethink some of our positions as it has for me on issues like Ukraine and on vaccines and on other issues where I kind of go, well, maybe I haven't really gotten the full picture either because of the amount of censorship that we've documented.
1: Right it's so interesting like w- w- you used to think that things like free speech was like the one of the most essential bedrocks of being on the left right free speech being anti-war right you know being pro tolerance for dissenting viewpoints right like coming up those were that's what it meant to be on the left Right. Today, it's like if you don't believe in the consensus and the right of, like you said, these, you know, over credentialed elites to tell everybody else what's right, you're kicked out of the left, even if you still have all of those economic, you know, populist views. I guess my question to you would be. Do you think it's more likely that the Democrats are going to find their way back to representing ordinary Americans? Or do you think it's more likely that the Republicans will develop a robust economic platform that represents those people to match the more symbolic culture war areas where they are kind of where the working class is today? Or do you think neither party is going to represent these forgotten Americans and they're just going to be left out in the cold as they have been for so long?
3: Well, wow, by you. well, those are that's really the, those are really interesting questions. And, um, you know, the thing about uh, trying to figure out predict the future is that everybody's terrible at it and elites are often <laughs> worse at it and experts are worse <laughs> at it than other people. But I, I definitely think the dynamic you're describing is very interesting, which is, you know, if you love the First Amendment and freedom of speech, what do you do when the party that you've been a part of for all of your life is demanding that it be restricted on social media platforms? And the party that you had spent your life demonizing as the enemy of free speech is out there uh, pushing for a much broader acceptance of disfavored views on social media platforms. Um, So I I don't know. I mean, but I have to say, I think your question is one of the most interesting questions in the world right now, which is the ways in which um, left and right are changing on these issues of freedom of speech and the ways in which uh, there is more of a changing alignment around elite versus populist. But I think it's a really open question. I mean, I think we have seen some Democrats, some publicly and some privately, express concern around the censorship. I mean, we mm-hmm. saw Ro Khanna, the Democrat uh, member of Congress representing Silicon Valley, reaching out to Twitter to express his concern about the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop. So I do think there are some signs there. Um, and I want to encourage this, the, the parts of the Democratic left that are advocating for broader free speech. Um, But mostly, I just think, you know, for me, I'm much more focused on the short term, which is that we really need to defund the organizations that are funded by the federal government to advocate censorship. We need to dismantle the various government agencies, including the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. As far as I'm concerned, it should be shut down immediately. Mm -hmm. They've already started changing their website to remove references to domestic censorship efforts. Um I have a pretty big piece coming out today on one of the leaders of the censorship industrial complex for her role in spreading disinformation and advocating censorship. So I do think in the short term I'd love to see as broad of a coalition as possible taking action to stop this broadening censorship efforts that we that you know that we talked about earlier including um around Ukraine and Russia and Facebook because it really is it, you know anybody that's trying to save democracy by undermining free speech You have to question their motivations.
0: Yes, and Republicans, I'm glad they're holding hearings on this that included you, included Matt Taibbi, need to do more than just hold hearings. They need to do exactly, as you just said, actually defund institutions. You know, curtail power of the power of various federal bureaucracies. It can't just be, oh, we're really upset that tar- Trump was targeted or something. Like it's got to be, Americans' free speech rights yes. are under siege here. Actually, rein in this bureaucracy. Just don't whine about it when it, you know, Trump happens to run foul. That that's something I would like to see from the GOP. Michael Schellenberger, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you guys. 60 Minutes reporter Leslie Stahl is getting blasted for her interview with Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene on Sunday evening, with the biggest criticism being her nearly speechless reaction to the representative's claim that President Joe Biden, along with fellow members of the Democratic Party, are pedophiles. Stahl was challenging MTG on her habit of calling Democrats the party of pedophiles and groomers in a Real America's Voice interview. MTG responded, saying, I would definitely say so. They support grooming children. The 60 Minutes interviewer objected, they are not pedophiles, why would you say that? To which Green said, Democrats support, even Joe Biden, the president himself, support children being sexualized and having transgender surgeries. Sexualizing children is what pedophiles do to children. Stahl rolled her eyes and whispered, wow, and added, okay.
1: I mean, (laughs) look... People don't understand what an interview is. They think the job of the interviewer is to fight with the subject if they don't like the subject. Like they don't get that the point of an interview is to find out what people who are not them think, especially people who are important newsmakers. right? What she did here was, she actually did push back. That's what I don't understand about these headlines. She pushed back twice. She first said to her, you've called them pedophiles, you know, basically WTF green responded and then she said but they are not pedophiles why would you say that and then allowed marjorie Taylor green to explain herself by the way she said something that a lot of people think right not a lot of people in news media not a lot of leftists on Twitter but a lot of Americans think that the the that allowing children to transgender to to, to transition that speaking to children about these issues at too early an age is a way of sexualizing the experience of being a child in a way that is problematic. Now, of course, I wouldn't call them pedophiles, okay? But she pushed back against her twice. Her job there was not to fight with Marjorie Taylor Greene. It was to give viewers a sense of what she thinks and and, and to fact check her in real time, which she did.
0: Right. So I, I have a couple thoughts about this. Uh, yeah. First of all, so I think the people who are mad, the mainstream media folks, progressives who are mad at Leslie Stahl, it's because they wanted to see her Well, I mean, first of all, they don't—they didn't want this interview to happen at all. And if it's going to happen, they want to see Marjorie Taylor Greene like eviscerated, like you know John Stewart style or something, uh, for for thinking these these things that they think are foolish. Um, They, you know, they take the view that again, this is—we've talked, we've had kind of a couple segments today dancing around this uh, or addressing explicitly this point that. Free speech is now something the pro-democracy coalition is afraid of. They think if you hear ideas they think are wrong and bad and even crazy, that you're going to be like infected with them and come to believe them. Like I don't, I, I, I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene came off particularly well. I don't think she can really defend the accusation that like Democrats are pedophiles in because they have a kind of a disagreement about with Republicans about, you know, what is the right age for um, for young people experiencing gender dysphoria to begin medical interventions that doesn't I think, make you a pedophile, and I think it's ridiculous to kind of defend that position. So I'm not, like, afraid that people are going to see that interview and go, wow, I thought Marjorie Taylor Greene was crazy, but now I agree with her because, what, like, some mainstream gatekeeper didn't do a good enough job destroying her on television? I think that's really silly, and, uh, and we're—I we're, mean, do Democrats— And and mainstream media people not think that their own views are persuasive. That there's just there's going to always be attrition every time you give any sort of platform to a person who disagrees with them. That's a that's a pretty you can't be very confident confident of your own views if that's what you think is going to happen.
1: They obviously think that's going to happen. And also, Robbie, that is happening, right? Because their views are terrible. Like, it used to be that you (laughs) had to fight for your views in the court of public opinion. Now, if you control all the media and all of the social media companies, what they do instead of fighting and trying to persuade people to agree with them is just silence them and not have them on. And in fact, that's what you saw with this um, interview, right? There was so much pushback just at the very idea that she had granted this interview, even before the interview was seen All of these, you know, big name journalists were saying, how dare she even give her a platform? And in fact, Glenn Greenwald weighed in on this and said in classic great Glenn fashion, this is what he tweeted. The number of liberals vehemently condemning this interview they have not seen. Based on their view that journalists should ignore everyone who isn't a Democrat or at least a good Trump-hating Republican like Mitt Romney or Liz Cheney reveals so much about their mindset, and I completely agree with him. I mean, the idea that a member of Congress, right, is not worthy of being, you know— interviewed mm-hmm. on, you know, on mainstream television a member of Congress who has a lot of power right now, whose views reflect where so much of the mainstream is at and doesn't get a hearing. And that was that's my criticism of Leslie Stahl, is that she didn't ask her about things like Ukraine, right, which is where Marjorie Taylor Greene has been incredibly brave, dragging her party, kicking and screaming into the anti-war place that used to be occupied by progressives that progressives are now too afraid to go to, right? She didn't ask her about any of the things that she's doing that are actually important. She sort of treated her like a social media celebrity and questioned her about those issues. Um, I will say I was very surprised to learn, Robbie, that Margie Taylor Green is worth ten million dollars. Did you know that?
0: I did not know that. Interesting, is, has right? She journalism. That
1: Hashtag journalism. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she accrued has she accrued that wealth recently by virtue of her position as no, an important she didn't. political figure. She,
1: she she accrued it, uh, her, her father had a building business, a, a contractor business. She and her husband bought it from her father and turned okay. it into an extremely, her ex-husband now, extremely lucrative business, made a lot of money, you know, jobs creators, right? And then she turned to, she, she bought a CrossFit gym. She's very into CrossFit. You know, this was great journalism. I mean, you really learned a lot. And and there wasn't a single one of her views that Leslie Stahl didn't ask her about and push back about, except, you know, maybe some of the more important ones. But everything that was controversial that she had said was aired and questioned, and she was given an opportunity to respond. And I have to say... Kudos to Marjorie Taylor Greene for going on CNN. I mean, like you, that's not that's not something that's obvious, right? Absolutely like a, a, agree a with Republican, you. Yes. a MAGA Republican, not steamrolling, not boycotting mainstream media in the way that some have taken to Ron DeSantis and others, yes. but saying, you know what, I'm up for this. I am not afraid of my positions. I am not ashamed of myself. I know that I am gonna be able to defend my views and, and represent myself. And that is something that, you know, d- Democrats, you know, few, how many of them, these days will go on Fox News, and by the way, when they do go on Fox News, they're treated with a lot more respect than Marjorie Taylor Greene was treated by by Leslie yeah. Stahl. I have to say, they're not badgered; they are respectfully asked their opinion, pushed back against, and then moving on. I mean, it's it's it's, it's um so I I find this whole thing about having to silence your opponents. It, it's just like what you said in the beginning, Robbie. They are afraid of their own opinions. They're insecure about their opinions. They know that they're unpopular, and instead of fighting for them and trying to convince people which they know will fail, they just try to silence people who disagree with them.
2: I
0: will say that I object to, um, of, of, you know, the, all Democrats are pedophiles, that kind of talk. Like, look, there, there is disagreement between Republicans and Democrats about what policies ought to be in schools, um, how to handle people who have gender related medical issues, what the appropriate steps are. Th- there is profound disagreement on, on these subjects. It- it's very political. Again, what the Democrats want is very much not what Republicans want, what Marjorie Taylor Green wants. By and large, though, it is not because like, they're trying to have sex with your children. It is like a political disagreement. No, I
1: I totally agree. I think, I I don't even like the word groomer. I think it goes too far. It's too close to how they used to call all gay people pedophiles. I'm not into it, but you know yeah. what? AOC calls every Republican a terrorist, right? Yeah. She doesn't get banned from CNN for doing so, right? There is overheated, gross language that demonizes the other side. There's too much of it. Everybody should give it up, you know? But it's yeah. very, very, very equally spread between the two parties. And only one party is you know, supposedly silenced for doing it.
0: Absolutely. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, independent reporter Louis DeAngelis will be back with new reporting out of East Palestine, Ohio, and you won't want to miss that. Bacha, it was great seeing you again on Monday. love to start out the week on the right foot.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Robbie. I'll be watching all week.
0: Thank you. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'll see you back here tomorrow.